Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition, yet another edition, yet another fucking edition of One Day Closer to Dead. I am Dave Beaudry. And I am Jason Bailey. And Jason, after you were determined to besmirch the reputation of the great state of Texas last week, I was just wondering if there were any feedback from the dozens uh, making you pay for your sins. No, we did get, um, actually, one of our top cities that listened to us this last week was Plano, Texas. So thank you, Plano. They've never shown up at all before. So, hey, welcome to the club. Um, we we did get um, some people contacting us saying, listen, everything that you that was read or from the other dozens on the air is extremely accurate. Um, that of course it we, is. That's That's it, why we read it. That's what we fucking do here, folks. Uh, but uh, they said, there, you know, once you live in Texas, it's just something that gets in your blood if you want to be here and, and you love it. It has a, an identity all to itself, and, and you take pride in living in Texas, even if you're not a conservative MAGA zombie asshole. So uh, that was, you know, they, they love the show for actually highlighting a lot of the you know the pipeline the, the Californians rolling into town in Texas and they they loved it uh that we we brought this uh to to every you know as a as a spotlight and just sort of you know conversed about it but uh no it's it's one of those things where i think it was a good conversation and i really think it was so damn good because I mean, yeah, we commented on it, but so many people had had literally brought it up, and and the great things that Julian King and Wonder Kennison wrote in particular, uh, you know, highlighted exactly how a lot of our listeners felt about the Texas situation. So that was the that was the specific feedback on that. Lovely. Anything else that you would like to go into before we break down the week's business, baby? Uh, no, I just wanted to say thank you to all the listeners out there, particularly internationally. Uh, Kansas City, we love you. Thank you for listening to us. Wichita, we love you. Thanks for listening to us. Uh, and, of course, Paris, uh, number third highest uh, listenership there. So thank you very much, Paris. Uh, like I said, we don't know why you listen, but we're so glad that you do. And, uh, yeah, well, and welcome to the club, Plano, Texas, which, uh, I, to my knowledge, we've never had you light up at all before. So... I don't know, but no. thank you very much, all you guys. Number number third is that a thing? Number three, Num- number three. Oh, okay. Number third. I'm like, wow, we're we are inventing the English language this week, folks. Well, a lot of times I do that, so it yeah, is that's what fair. It is. I wonder this, if this, this late at night, we're lucky I can speak at all. So I wonder. While well, the night is young, I wonder if Plano is one of those that like Googled themselves and then our fine episode <laughs> came up, and they're like, oh, it's Texas. We got to listen to it. Well, it started with "What the fuck, Texas" is the name of the title. So, well, WTF? It could mean anything, Jason. Uh, yes, absolutely. But uh, no, I, I really, we have a lot of listeners from Texas. We really do. So, I hope that they they listen to it, get something out of it. And you know what's even better is if they disagree with us or have finer points of contention. Believe me, we will listen to it. We we love hate mail as much as we love the good shit. We just don't get a lot of hate mail, honestly. We don't. So, yeah, that's that's us. We're we're your favorite happy happy joy joy podcast. So thanks for listening. Well, the world is a dumpster fire, Jason. Did you know that? <clears throat> I certainly did. Did you know why? Because it truly fucking is, Dave. I just decided to throw that in there because it's the apparently happy, happy, joy, joy episode. So, uh, Jason, what would you like to talk about uh, this week? Well, I think that... And we're out of time! No, I'm kidding. Go ahead. 
I think we've been researching a lot, uh, or at least I have these articles and these historians, some of the futurists out there, a lot of so-called experts from the Smithsonian Institute and all these other places. And a lot of people are really starting to think about now what life is going to be like post cotton candy. You know, the post-CC situation we got coming up here. And it really got me to thinking this is something very, very interesting to to speak about because, you know, last year, I think we did a great job every single week of covering just how fucked up the cotton candy situation was with whether it was the pandemic, the shithead who was the president, um, you know, the the racial tension and, you know, unrest that was happening. We, we really covered so much of 2020 so well. And of course, it fit our dumpster fire segment you know, perfectly, actually, we, there was no end. I mean, there's sometimes there was competing dumpster fires we had to pick from because there was just so much terrible shit going on. And you could relive all of that. If you listen to our hindsight 2020 episode, that's a very well received episode. How was that for, how's that for a shameless plug? If there ever was one. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. That one was a, a top listen to show right right out of the gate. So, um, but at any rate, now I would like to really talk about these comparisons that a lot of these. I don't. I think they're. I they're definitely historians, but they're just people thinking about where the economy is going to go, uh, where society is going to go with religion or 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 healthcare or politics, and seeing how much this last year and a half to two years is going to influence the rest of the 2020s. And what we have for a direct comparison um, as to something that is sort of like what we just went through is, of course, the the uh, flu, the, the 1918 flu, you know, the, the, the I mean, as you would call it, the Spanish flu or the influenza epidemic that happened in 1918 going into 1919 is sort of what we had for 2020 and 2021. And what happened after the the survivors came out of those two years, which was far more deadlier than, than the, the COVID outbreak that we uh, currently went through, is what's known as the Roaring Twenties. And a lot of people have been talking about this. Bill Maher has been talking about this. A lot of people have been talking about this is what what is going to happen in this upcoming decade that may that we could we, that might be influenced by the cotton candy Um epidemic that we just went through and it was just very interesting because i you know to me we have talked the the because of dumpster fire segment and because of our general you know happy demeanor we have just talked the shit into the ground about how fucking terrible this has all been because it has been um you know even when we try to put a happy spin on certain things we try to be funny about it um yeah it is what it is you know it's a fucking pandemic so um this one i would like to look at it and see if there's any positives that we might be able to predict or we could draw from the roaring 20s or even after you know the 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 black plague the black death that happened uh, as well because there are certain things that are markers in humanity or in society that happen 
after survivors come out of the caves and, you know, this this mass death has happened, but you weren't one of them in, in a lot of ways. So that's sort of what I want to talk about and get the, the dozens out there kind of thinking about, okay, we're in the moment now, but we are reopening. And, and definitely by mid this month, most of the country is going to read the fuck open. I mean, open wide. And there, there's going to be a massive reckoning of who we are now and where we're going because of what we've gone through. So that's really all this is. It's just a conversation with you, Dave, about what do you think we can expect? Um, I mean, both good and bad, but is there something that we could draw comparisons from in history that you see might be applying coming up very soon? No, none. So now next to our next subject of the week. Uh, all right, let me, uh, let me uh, re reset there. Um, yeah, no, still none. On to our next up. No. So basically, uh, I mean, one thing that, one thing that makes it tough to predict is I, I have a hard time believing that it will be another hundred years before we have another pandemic. So part of the problem with estimating or looking forward or trying to predict that is, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if we had another one not cotton candy, but something different, or maybe some variant thereof, you know, it could be within the next five years. And then all of a sudden that kind of throws everything right back. So it, I don't actually feel comfortable making that specific prediction. I'll start with that. Yeah, well, that's, I understand that. The thing is that when I was um, really kind of looking into it and researching it, it, there's some gut feelings that I went, well, that's fairly accurate because a lot of things I just go on feel I'm like yeah that seems just about fucking right and they there's a lot of people that live through the the flu or whatever you want to call it the pandemic of 1918 1919 they're trying to get away from calling it the Spanish flu now completely because it comes off as racist so you know I'm going to do the same and and and, and it's not trying to stop calling it that as well but you know, kind of like the Chinese virus or the Kung flu, that bullshit that he was doing. Now they're trying to go back in history. Well, let's just stop calling this the Spanish flu. So the deal is that people who lived through 1918, 1919's pandemic, there was some similarities to what's going on now. And the fact that a lot of people just like toilet paper with their money, they really did hoard it as much as they could because there was an absolute fear of what was going on around them. Uh, there was a lot more death in 1918, 1919 than here too. And oh, easily, that was yeah. that and a, a primary primarily it's because uh, we took it a lot more fucking seriously this time around, believe it or not. And I mean, it's true back in 1918, 1919, there would be communities that wouldn't even act to wear a mask until people started fucking dying. And by that time, it was nearly too late. The more uh, things times, change, Jason, the more they stay the same. That's true. And a lot of times, these communities, and we're just talking maybe a city here or there, like, you know, San Francisco, LA, New York, whatever, would, you know, mandate that you wear a mask for about six weeks. Six fucking weeks. And then it was just, well, a lot of people died. We got we to gotta keep going here. Another thing is there was no, um, you know, stimulus package or anything like that to keep people at home. There was nothing like, listen, this is fucking horrible. So we'll give you money to go back to your flats and don't come out. Go back to your homes. Stay there until this thing's over. 
that did not exist. So people who, you know, needed fucking money, they still went to work. There was really no social distancing in, in that capacity at all. Work still had to fucking work here. Or factories still had to go. Or social safety How, net in that regard. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing is that we dealt, we dealt with this much better than obviously in 1918, 1919 as a, a government, as a society worldwide. And I think it's just because we were savvier with science and people decided, you know, this is, this is really bad for, for all the cattle out there. We, we need to prod them in the right fucking direction. They just didn't have that kind of organizational power a hundred years ago. But that's really, you know, it's it's so interesting to think what would that 1918 pandemic have been like had they had something like that, like fucking everyone mask up and everyone go the fuck home. You know, it, maybe it wouldn't have been as deadly. Obviously, it would not have been as deadly as it was, but that was interesting. But people it's really... Also, sorry, Jason, it's also impossible no. to really say for a couple of different reasons. One is the absence of mass media back then is, you know, that... Th- that's one thing that we've talked about on the show before that allows, you know, conspiracy theories and pretty much anything to propagate, you know, if, if you can find a, an audience for it. Uh, but it also allows news to spread a lot quicker in real time than what what certainly was possible back back then. So it's and also, you know, the uh, the flu spread, you know, it's it's a different type of virus than uh, than COVID as well. So it's it's also tough to say, like, I, I, I don't know if masks are as effective or would have been as effective back then as they were with this particular variant of COVID or not. I would assume probably not, but I don't know that. Um, so it's it's tough to say for those particular variables. But what's interesting is, I mean, the basic human psychology is still the same. If there's a way to monetize or to gain importance or prominence out of being a voice of dissent, even when that voice of dissent is dumb, you're going to have people claim that banner, man. And I think that would have happened regardless, especially if they had a a soapbox as big to broadcast it from as Twitter. (laughs) Absolutely. The thing is that people really did, they were terrified and they, you know, I speaking specifically, I mean, I'm sure worldwide, but the, the research that I kind of looked into was, you know, here, here in America, in the United States of free enterprise and people hoarded everything they fucking had because they, they were terrified of the deaths that were happening all around them. But, you know, people in their family were falling and it was hitting people in their twenties, primarily blah, blah, blah. And then here came the 1920s there and everyone had some money that they had stockpiled away and there was some survivor's guilt. And there was also this idea of life that they had, they had made it. There was a celebration that we got through this fucking plague somehow and um, we're going to enjoy ourselves. And then this entered the Roaring Twenties. You know, it's an interesting contrast. Is It's an entirely different scenario that caused it. But if you look at the societal reaction in the face of the national tragedy of Vietnam, um, now you can argue or not argue whether or not, you know, the United States should or should not have been in that conflict or like that's a whole nother can of worms that I don't think either one of us really want to go into at this particular moment in time. But... There is no denying that that conflict was extremely traumatizing for the country as a whole. And then against that backdrop is where you saw kind of the, you know, make love, not war and kind of the, you know, um, 
socializing and drug use as well. And like all of that was really against the backdrop of Vietnam. So I think it very, very frequently you do have kind of this, this acting out period for lack of better terminology um, in response to an incredibly oppressive tragedy that goes on over an extended period of time. Like 9-11 was a horrible day, but it was one day. Changed the way the entire country has run ever since. But that's different than a prolonged war. That's different than a prolonged pandemic. That's where you tend to see these kind of societal trends that do last longer. And I do think that's an interesting, it just kind of occurred to me as I was, you know, talking off the top of my head about it, um, you know, where you're about to go as far as the, the you know, the roaring 20s. And also, as I said, in my mind, there is a parallel that can be made there with the, with the 60s in the backdrop of, of Vietnam. That's absolutely right. And that's, that's what this, this podcast is about. It's a fucking conversation. We, we don't know where we're going with this half the time, folks. Um, but yeah, social psychologists have said they're, the pendulum will swing because it's just humans. This is what we fucking do. Um, you know, when we feel oppressed and we haven't seen people and we haven't done things, we haven't spent money. Uh, we were terrified to, you know, have a drink after someone put the drink down, say, Hey, try that. Or we were terrified to be around people at all, including friends and family. You couldn't say goodbye to loved ones that were dying in person. That's right. That's right. Um, you know, it, it, it is, I mean, it's highly bizarre, I guess, and it's in a lot of people say it's also naive to draw this comparison. But, you know, there are a lot of social psychologists that say, listen, in 2022, 2023, this there definitely is going to be a couple years of fuck it. We're having fun mode where people have this excess of money in their savings accounts. I don't know if you know this or not, but it's been shown that the America's savings accounts are now the highest they've been in like for fucking ever because a lot of the stimulus money that was sent out was people were just terrified and a lot of middle-class families just stockpiled it. They didn't fucking spend it on jack shit because they didn't want to lose their houses like they did in 2007 or right, they just they shoved it in their bank accounts and just waited to see, well, what, what, uh, what next could happen? Fucking what other, I mean, we got the fucking pandemic with a social unrest and Donald Trump, what the fuck else could happen? Just hold on to that goddamn money. So we did. And now people are just like, Oh, Hey, I don't think we need a warehouse of toilet paper in the backyard anymore. Anyone wants some toilet paper? And that's sort of the way it's going with the money. There's going to be what's known as revenge spending, where people are making up for lost goddamn consumerism, where they're like, you know what? I'm just going to buy everything I ever wanted on Amazon today because I've got the money and I'm oppressed and it's a new fucking day. So they are looking at this sort of having fun couple of fucking years and a lot of people reprioritizing their lives before COVID, you know, before cotton candy. And now we're, you know, they're looking at like, hey, life can be shorter than you think. And, you know, I'm not here for a long time. I'm here for a good fucking time. And I think that the millennials, especially, which they oversimplified this, but a lot of people said, you know, the millennial generation, they really don't live for money per se. Like I think a lot of my generation does, honestly, uh, they live for the experience. They're not as materialistic as the previous generations. They're more about the human experience. So you take this young generation and then you throw their 
their tragedy, their generational tragedy at them, which is cotton candy. And you're probably looking at a generation that's going to change the world in a very experiential way. And I'm, I'm fascinated by what the cotton candy is, has and will be doing with this generation specifically. And I think that it's going to reprioritize a lot of people's lives going forward. I do think that there's going to be a lot of alcohol drink, a lot of sex being done, and a lot of getting out there and just seeing people that they haven't seen for a while and just getting to relearn that human fucking connection that we we lost. And even though technology was brought to us to keep us even further away, I really think that there's going to be, I need to go see this person uh, really, really badly. It's burning in us right now. I can tell you, I think I said it on a podcast earlier that when I went down to uh, Tennessee to see Joey, the best time we had by far, I mean, not even, nothing even came close is when literally me and him, because you couldn't go a lot of places because there was still a semi shutdown and they closed early, weird hours, shit like that, where we were just sat in a room in the hotel and just talked for like four or five hours straight. And it was weird to be in a room with somebody and literally talk with them that long. It was bizarre. Even someone that you consider your lifelong friend, because you're like, this is something that I haven't done for so fucking long that it just seemed bizarre. And it, But at the end of it, you realized how much better that was than fucking Zoom or Skype or a telephone call or FaceTime or a text. There is nothing, 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 nothing that replaces human interaction. It's something we just fucking need. We absolutely need. And I think there's going to be an absolute thriving for it. Another thing that I know from being in the industry that I'm in, and it was proven back in the 1920s, and I can see that it's, I really know this is going to happen is that a third of restaurants are gone now, permanently, fucking permanently, okay? And there's a lot of hotels gone. There's a lot of things that are just gone, like certain parks and things like that were just hospitality. You know, okay? what isn't, you know what isn't gone, though, Jason? What? Taco Bell. I'm going to take you all tonight to dinner to Taco Bell. Um, that's true. It's gonna, it'll, it'll be around forever. Uh, but the, the deal is that I really think that People are going to just inundate, you know, that 60, 60, 65% of the hospitality industry that's still around. We are going to just get bum rushed, dude. We, we, and the funniest thing is, it's not funny. We're not fucking ready. We are, nobody is ready. We can't handle it. And because of the reprioritization of, I think a lot of young people, I don't think they're willing to even come back to these fucking jobs I really don't. A lot of so people are gotta, holding out for uh, jobs where they can work at least part of the time from home um, is what I heard on the radio actually just the other day where a lot of people that are that are job hunting is not necessarily that they're just, you know, sitting back and, and waiting for the unemployment benefits to run out. It's it's actually that they want to be able to at least part time be working from their house to where they can manage their lives better than having to be in an office at all times of the day. And that is causing, at least to some degree, I can't give you statistics, but to at least some degree, that is causing a bit of the holdout um, as well as some of the, the hiring is that the uh, incoming employees have different priorities than they necessarily did a year and a half ago. 
That's exactly right. It's a reprioritization of what fucking matters to the the day-to-day worker. And it's it's going to be something that our industry, the hospitality industry, is really going to have to relearn and get ahead of because here we're going to be used harder than we've ever been used before in, in this upcoming five years at least, if not the next decade. And we now are faced with, well, what the fuck do we do? Because I don't even think after the stimulus ends that we are going to have the workforce that we used to have, not even close. So it's not as simple as people out there keep saying, well, they just gave everyone too much money. They gave everyone too much stimulus. They gave everyone. I don't see it that way at all. I think that, yes, that plays a bit. There's no doubt about it. But I really think it comes down to people got off the fucking treadmill for enough time. And I'm not talking like like i'm not putting you down dave but i'm not talking an actor in la i'm talking the common how dare you sir these these weird alien people out in la but i'm talking just people that went to work 40 50 60 hours a week for decades got off the treadmill because they were made to okay and even with a loss of money started sitting back going i'm not going back to that shit yeah, I'm not doing that quote-unquote American dream shit anymore. No, no, no. Let me rethink this whole thing. And I really do think it's going to reset the economic system, or at least the way that we view work uh, internationally, but particularly in America, which are some of the hardest-working motherfuckers ever. We, we work our goddamn lives away. And I really think that post-COVID, there's going to be a lot of fuck-this-work shit I really like to have an orgy tonight and down this ball of vodka, quite frankly. Then we'll Netflix and chill. And I can just see that we've all started to really rethink our priorities or even what's going to make us happy. But there is going to be a backlash and what's or backlash in sort of a good way. Like, you know, it's it's one of those things where even the the historical stuff that they looked through and and um, you know, what you would call the the black mass, the black death, you know, it was it was really after that whole thing ended uh, in Europe that it was the after the plague sort of, you know, took its course and killed just about everybody. It, it was the same way that there there was started to be a new thinking about feudalism and how to end that shit. Uh, there started to be a lot more, you know, drinking, partying, having a good fucking time. And it's it's just human nature to go. We survive this bitch. How about we have a good time and rethink what we were doing before this? I also think it's very interesting how we're going to put it in perspective, where I think because you're right, there's just so much media now and we're so interconnected worldwide. We are going to look at COVID as, you know, this major, major human crisis that occurred where the, you know, this and pandemic still, of and ni- still is occurring. Look at India. Yeah. This pandemic of 1918, largely very much largely wasn't taught in most schools. There was not the historical society coming out saying we need to preserve what happened here. There were no monuments dedicated to this flu. There was no stamps that you, you know, the survivors of this flu, there was fucking nothing about this goddamn pandemic, probably until the 1970s when some historians started going, we really should talk about what happened, you know, when we were kids. Does anyone want to know that this thing happened? Largely, it was just like you heard from your grandparents, kind of, 
over a coffee or something about the, the plague, the pandemic, the, you know, the influenza, whatever the fuck they want to call it. But it really was kept quiet. And it's a very American, like, just take it on the fucking chin. We all had to go to work. There was a lot of death, whatever. But it is, it's going to be interesting how our generation and all the people that are walking the fucking planet today uh, really think about COVID going forward. And, and because honestly, 1918, 1919 really didn't get its fucking due at all. Everyone just sort of yeah, that happened. And then they moved on, uh, as they were, you know, pretty much required to, but it's a big fucking deal. Well, the good and news, it, it changed their, their human condition just as much as cotton candy has changed our human condition. Well, the good news though, is, is that this time around, Jason, we, we don't need history books. We don't need news articles. We don't even need, well, I guess in a way we would need the internet, but don't need any of that because this time around we had America's favorite niche podcast and those archives are available now to anyone who would choose to go back and revisit the joy of the past 18 months <laughs> oh it was it was a real fucking joy let me tell you but I didn't, yeah, you, and you should, honestly, there's some good shit in there, obviously. But the thing is that, uh, I, I can tell you that for myself, that's, that's one of the things that I look at and go, I really need to see my friends. I need to see my family. You know, I definitely want the company of a lot of gorgeous young women around me very soon. There's things that just in your mind are like, yeah, let's, let's get back to being fucking you can, humans here. You can you still know? do let's that over Zoom, time. Jason. You would enjoy I, that. I've, I've done that for a year and a half. I just, it's not the same. It's just not the same. And, you know, also what's funny is I finally can take my mask off at certain places. And one of them is work. I take it off and everyone has been saying to me, you look so angry. You just look so angry. And honestly, you know what it is? I forgot how to fake smile. After a year and a half, I really have forgot how to put on that. Oh, yes. Yes. The guest is always right. Absolutely, sir. Yeah. And it's gone. Like it's gone. I, I sort of unlearned how to smile because I had a mask on all the fucking time. It just wasn't required. As long as I squinted my eyes a little bit, it looked like I was smiling. You must so unlearn really, what you have learned. I, what you have learned. I really do have to <laughs> activate the smile muscles. I'm like, my God, they're sore. They're so Jason, under-conditioned. You'd be so much prettier if you smiled more. No, yeah, but it it is it's funny like that's one of the things like there are these little things that and they say that women's fashions is going to be amazing, you know, lots of skin, the makeup's going to be out of control because they want to show their whole face now. I'm just uh I'm just excited as all fucking get out to see how crazy the rest of this decade is as far as the influence of the pandemic on just our day-to-day activities in society and how we deal with each other. I really am. I'm just, it's uh, it's going to be very fascinating to see how fucking far the pendulum swings the other direction to make up for all that, all that time we haven't been doing shit. But also for how long, because as a society, we are not very good at all at learning the lessons of history. So the more things change, the more they stay the same. The patterns just kind of repeat over and over again. It's just how quickly will that cycle run? And, um, time will tell time will tell any, any further thoughts, Jason, before we move on? No, absolutely. I just want all the dozens out there to really think about that. And honestly, if any of you little futurists out there have some ideas, you, you need to contact us because we'd love to, uh, read them on the air or discuss them, uh, going forward. And where might they be able to do that at our 1920s email address? 
That's just about fucking right. You can always reach us at this 1920s email address known as AskDaveAndJason at Excite.com Because, well, god damn it! Orgies are exciting. Alright, let's talk comic books, my man, because childhood is dead. Much yep. like many other things in life. Because we're, we're being happy today. This is the happy episode. Yeah, the happy episode out of, like, 91 of them or something. Mm. Uh, but, uh, comic books, Jason, you love them, I love them, we both grew up with them. Nowadays, they have invaded pop culture in a way that I don't think either one of us could have necessarily predicted uh, no. back, in our, back in our youth. So, uh, let's take a moment and go down memory lane. Yeah, let's baby. get in the DeLorean. Go back through the years, not just at the... We've talked comic book characters before. Yeah, we've talked yeah, we Batman. Have. We've talked the X-Men. We've talked... I mean, those are really the only ones that matter. But, uh, you know, some people would say throw Spider-Man in there. Um, but let's actually... I want to talk actual storylines. What are stories from the comics that you remember from your childhood, your formative years that kind of helped mold the love that you have for that art form or that genre? Yeah, absolutely. Well, the thing with comics is it's interesting how everybody our age, I mean, really, it doesn't really matter if you're a man, a woman, it doesn't really matter. Like, I, I can't believe a lot of times, you know, you just if you got Disney Plus and you look at the Marvel section, like, it's goddamn amazing at, at what marvel in particular has done to just infiltrate pop culture and you're right as a kid i never in a million years would have thought that well you know the biggest movies that come out and the ones people want to see the most not just fucking nerds but like everybody are the marvel characters iron I'd man like, is going to launch a multi-billion dollar <clears throat> franchise that's right. I really? Mean, <laughs> why were, that would just be fucking crazy. Even in the, I mean, honestly, let's just be frank. Even in the fucking 90s, if you would have said, listen, they're going to come out with the X-Men movies and they're really good. And a lot of people are going to like them. They're done very well. And then Iron Man's going to come out and just set the fucking cinematic universe on fire. And you're going to have like, you know... 15, 20 years of Marvel, 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 Marvel. Every actor is going to be in it. Yeah, all the Academy Award winners going to be in it. But I'd just be like, you have lost your fucking minds. Those Raimi, Raimi Spider-Man movies also, I think, really set a tone for their Absolutely. time. And they got a lot of other comic movies greenlit that might not necessarily have otherwise broken through the barrier. Oh, I agree. I absolutely agree. But I mean, just we could have a conversation. This is just on its own. We won't. But I mean, I, I, you might have convinced me Warner Brothers with um, with DC, but you sure shit wouldn't have convinced me that Marvel would ever get their shit together uh, and get and get that thing going. And by God, it's unfucking believable what they've done. But when I when I was a child, and I told the story before, I learned to read from comic books. Um, I obviously, as you know, just a American red blooded boy, love fucking comic books and comic book superheroes and the stories, and I just fuck and loved it you know what i mean but it really wasn't until i probably was i was trying to think maybe uh 12 or 13 that i started reading comics differently and it just ingesting it was, the story you know was, what i mean it, it was the year that action comics number one was released and that just shaped jason's life for the decades to come 
It really did. It really did. And, you know, after I survived that flu and that pandemic in 1919, <laughs> I was ready for some comic books. Anyway, um, and, and of course, this is going to come as no surprise and people are probably going to roll their fucking eyes, but it, it really comes down to the Dark Knight Returns for me. It really does. And I know it's probably the most overly, well, now it's Watchmen, but the most overly talked about comic in, in comics history because I was a Batman fan all through the 80s. I remember going to my little Walden bookstore that was in the corner of this this mall that we had in Pittsburgh, Kansas. And they had a, they had basically what would be known as like the graphic novel section today. And I remember seeing the dark Knight returns back there and not even understanding what to make of it as maybe I was probably about nine years old and I was flipping through and I was like, well, the art's not that good. You know, this is the things you think about when you're a kid, right. it doesn't, it's not drawn that well. And Batman's old. What? And I just would put it back and walk away. Later on in that same year, I remember seeing The Watchmen. And I was like, my God, there's just too many words in this fucking thing. Too many panels. You sound like a studio executive. Well, maybe that should have been my career as a child. I probably make better films. But anyway, I was just like, that's that's crazy. But I remember when these came out. It was but it was only until I was about twelve years old I I read The Dark Knight Returns. And uh boy, that just fucking changed my life, man. Because the thing is that I realized it was different. I realized that a lot of people say, well, it was dark. It's dark. Yes, the Dark Knight Returns is dark, okay? But there's still a very hero element in it. Batman is still a fucking hero in this piece, okay? Uh, where Watchmen, which I read probably four or five years later, cover to cover, uh, probably in one night setting, um, it's very ambiguous. If there's any hero in it at all, I guess it'd be Rorschach, maybe. But it, Dark Knight Returns is still a superhero comic book. It still is. Just, and it really changed my whole life. It's when I delved even further and read The Killing Joke, year one. And these three together are probably still my three favorite, you know, Batman stories of well, all time. That's actually what I was going to throw your way just for basic reaction, because I didn't actually read it until I was much older. But I, from a writing standpoint... Um, I actually enjoyed Year One way more than I did uh, Dark Knight Returns. Yeah, well, Year One is fantastic, too. And the thing is that, of course, I knew that, you know, Frank Miller wrote it. He wrote it after he had done uh, Dark Knight. So, it came, you know, even though chronologically it's before, he wrote it after. And reading that was amazing i fucking loved it so because you kind of bookended it you got you know frank miller's take on batman at the beginning and you got frank miller's take on batman at the at the end or at least we thought it was the end so um but it's it's amazing and jim gordon's a real character he's he was fleshed out better than he'd ever been fleshed out uh before and you get to see batman really trying to be Batman and figure out how to fucking do this as much later certain films would would explore that year one quality uh, too. But the but going back to that and and also reading you know Alan Moore's The Killing Joke it just you just can't get away from the genius that Alan Moore is and you can't get it to me it's the definitive Joker story that that explores the relationship between the Joker and Batman and these three comics are amazing and I mean after that I was reading The Cult I was reading Arkham Asylum these are fucking dark stories I'll okay say, folks I, I I've actually never read the graphic novel that inspired it but one of my favorite um comic book movies is V for Vendetta 
Yeah, no, V for Vendetta is very amazing. At the time it came out, many people were looking at it kind of like, well, you know, they're drawing comparisons to post 9-11 and George W. Bush. You know, when it was written, Alan Moore was making social commentary about Margaret Thatcher. And that, that era is, yeah, it's, you, could, you could talk about Nixon, you know, about, you know, Trumpism, MAGA, whatever the fuck. You can use it at any time. It's fantastic. Alan Moore is a whole separate subject and the god and genius of comic writing. Uh, he really is amazing. And he writes fucking comic books. He doesn't write books and he doesn't write things to be made into movies later. That was just happenstance. He writes comics. I don't think Alan Moore is going to be really jumping out there, getting all social in the in the roaring 20s post-pandemic. That doesn't really seem like his speed. No, no, but he's he is. There's no doubt about it. The most gifted of all writers uh, with the, that medium in comics. He's amazing, but it, it did change my life and it made me look at Batman a lot different. And even, um, he became more of a hero to me to watch him as a human being aging and have to, you know, to deal with what every person goes through is they still want to be a badass, They still want to do good, but they're, they're just not who they used to fucking be. And all the gimmicks and tricks he has, he's pulling out to, to fucking do one last battle and go against, you know, everyone, the Joker, Superman, fucking everybody, uh, to, for his own personal crusade. So the Dark Knight Returns will always be very special to me because, and I've read it multiple times throughout my life. And it means something different to me. Every time I read it, you can take different things out of it, much like the Watchmen, which came for me about four or five years later. And I love the Watchmen and the characters in the Watchmen are amazing too. And as my life has gone on, there's a lot of times I could relate to, you know, Eddie Blake, the comedian. There's a lot of times I could relate to Rorschach. A lot of times I can relate to Dr. Manhattan or Adrian Veidt. And I mean, each character, as I've gotten older, I'm like, well, I get that now. Well, I understand what he's saying there. I understand that that is an amazing, um, just it's an amazing piece of literature. And it's it's and even Dave Gibson's illustrations are so amazing. Oh, they're how he structures it. How he structures it, he's even been saying in interviews, he goes, if I had to do it again, I couldn't. I couldn't. He goes, it's, it's, I don't even know what inspiration I had to do that, but I don't think I could do as well as I did. I mean, if you, it, beyond just the drawing of the shit, the way that the panels are structured is also telling you a story. That's the art Outs- it's amazing what what Gibbons did. So that, of course, changed my life. But as the years went on and, and they came out with Hush, you know, or The Long Halloween, things of this nature with Batman, I would read them and be, quite frankly, ill-impressed. And much like, let's say, films that I've, I've talked about nowadays, I really think I just came from an era that I'm stuck in. And it's sometimes hard for me to break out of, like this bitter, angry old man. But I really do look at it and go... I have seen the best. I've all, I mean, it's not that I don't want more. I do. But it just, there's simply no comparison both with what I've done and at the age that I experienced it. Because that's what really touched off that. That's what touches off nostalgia. Nostalgia is, is a time, it's not a place, and it can't be re-fucking-captured. Well, the, and the real problem, Jason, true. is you just need to smile more. Yeah, actually, or wear the mask all the time and just say it's for medical reasons. I mean, that's what but, Bruce does. There you go. But the the deal is that the mask, but the the issue is that I really didn't hit anything that even came close until later on when I started reading, you know, uh, Hulk 
Hulk storylines. Um, obviously, it's only a two-parter, but Future and Perfect was amazing, uh, and I love it to this day. But really, the comic book experience I had as a full-fledged adult, and I and I love the Luther for President stuff and all that, and I did. I thought that was great. But the one that I was just like, it's just this is amazing, and I just can't get enough of this shit is the uh, Planet Hulk entire run and every single fucking comic that came out was spectacular in both its artwork its storytelling and the fact that you get that hulk doesn't have to deal with humans bullshit anymore he literally has been thrown on a planet that is as savage as him and he starts as a prisoner and has to figure out a way to conquer this get out of his situation he's in and ultimately go to war and conquer the planet and it is something just is one of the best comic book reading experiences I've ever had. I would take as many issues as I could get, go down to the Mexican restaurant in, in Glendale that they shut down for having rusty beer water, and just read in the hot blazing sun until I just couldn't read anymore. I fucking love that comic. And as an adult, that it really, to see what they've done with it, they've made an animated cartoon out of it. Of course. They used a lot of it for Thor Ragnarok. And of you course. see little pieces that they have taken from the story and you kind of golf clap it like well they at least they got some of that blah blah there's just nothing 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 in my opinion like that story it really it's amazing the, uh, and and so the thing is as far as storylines dave those are the ones that really you know touched me and mean something to me even to this day i can reread them and i'm like they're just this is amazing that, that this was actually a thing it was made in the in the purest comic book format it could be made this is it was literally made for this format for this medium it's not it was there was no idea that it would escape it and become anything other than a comic book the the ones that i remember the most are from when i really first started reading comics serially because there was before that i would pick up one here or there and they were kind of standalones and i didn't you know necessarily follow a storyline so the ones that I first remember were just kind of my first experience with them. I don't think they were necessarily the best stories, but they were the ones that stood out because it was my opening, ex you know, um, um, experience with it, really. Uh, and a lot of those come from the X-Men. And the I remember one was, big one was, at the time, was the legacy virus that was killing off uh, mutants, and then Colossus's sister died from it. And that ended up, turning him to join, you know, Magneto's kind of side of things. It was around that same time where Magneto ripped the adamantium skeleton clean out of uh, Wolverine. And I think I might, I think I still have that issue. Um, and I like, that was a fucking moment. And then I remember, you know, a few years later, I think it was a few years later, I, the, the death of Superman storyline, I actually didn't initially read in comics. I got the, the hardcover novel, uh, the Death and Life of Superman by Roger Stern, when that came out, still have that book. And I and I, I loved to experience that storyline in novel form. Um, and that's also how I experienced Nightfall, where, you know, Batman had his back broken and, and you know, had to had to reclaim the mantle of the bat and all that. Uh, that was a great book by, by Dennis O'Neill and uh, experienced that story that way. So uh, ironically, some of my favorite comic stories I didn't actually experience through the comics, nor did I experience them through movies. I actually experienced them through novelizations of the graphic novels themselves. Um, I said X-Men was the one that really stood out from uh, an earlier age of Legacy Virus, the, the Phalanx, um, Banshee's importance to this future kind of thing. Um, and that was all around the time that the, the X-Men animated series, I think, was also really taken off and, and 
becoming a really big deal. So that was kind of the the timeline in which all of that really, really kind of captivated my attention. Yeah. Have you seen any of um, that Netflix Jupiter's Legacy? No. Okay. I wanted to just say this before we get off the topic, because it's, to me, it's weird. Uh, it's good, but it's weird. And the fact that I, you probably are well aware of the uh, story arc, the Alex Ross collection of graphic novels, trade paperbacks, whatever the fuck you want to call it, called Kingdom Come. Do you I've know Kingdom it. Come? I've heard okay. of it. Well, Kingdom Come is about the DCK. It's really like legendary now, um, but it's about all the the big heavyweights in the DC universe, um, older and uh, you know retired, and having to come back and deal with just a shit fest that has that's come upon the world, particularly United States of America. And Superman comes out of retirement and he's just farming in Kansas. You know, he wants to be left the fuck alone. And, uh, you know, everything's been disbanded. Kind the of Dark like Man in, of Steel returns. Well, kind of, but it's all of them. It's like the whole goddamn Justice League. Like, Justice League Unlimited. Like, everybody is in this fucking thing. And Alex Ross's uh, artwork is just uh, phenomenal. It's fucking phenomenal in this. But um, it's like the Watchmen where, you know, legally they're told, hey, you got to step down and this is how it is. And Superman comes back to a whole new generation of younger superheroes that have powers because they're the children or grandchildren of all the, the original justice league or the heavyweights back, back in the day. And he's basically reinforcing the code, basically saying, Hey, we don't kill. This is not how we do things. We are superheroes. We protect We do all this stuff that Superman's about and what the old heroes are. And then you got, and they're all ancient. Like Batman's, I think in his seventies, they're all, you know, 60s, 70s, 80s, some of them. And, um, they're, he has a separate faction and Luther's teamed up with some people. Anyway, it's a very interesting, great story. Uh, I think it's aged well, actually, when it first came out, I didn't know. I was like, eh, I don't know, but it's done very well. And, um, well, anyway, Jupiter's Legacy came out on Netflix. I think it's still in their top 10 most watched shit. And I watched the whole thing. Like, within a matter of maybe two or three days, I watched every single episode. And it's based on a current graphic novel by Mark Millar, okay? Uh, who is also responsible for what we now know as the Avengers. The Ultimate Avengers, in comic book form, became what we know as the Avengers. They stole shit tons of shit to throw that in the movie, Okay. Well, anyway, he's Jupiter's Legacy is a graphic novel that he does. Anyway, Jupiter's Legacy is very well done, but I'll tell you what, folks, and for all the dozens out there, it is kingdom come. Like, I don't know how Alex Ross is not able to sue everyone involved with this fucking thing. It's good, but it is legitimately, literally kingdom come made as a television Netflix series, just different characters, different names, you know, but it's the same. It is the same fucking story. Is it's Netflix, the same story. Is a Netflix show live action or animated live action? Oh, wow. Yeah. And it's good. Like the story is good. The acting's phenomenal. Like everything about it. I can recommend you should watch it. The bizarre thing is though, every, when I'm watching, I've watched it probably twice now and I just going, how the fuck has DC or Alex Ross personally not sued everybody involved with this fucking thing? Because like it is 
Kingdom Come, which is a very well-known story arc in DC, which Time Warner owns, or Time, whatever the fuck it is now. But it is, it's pretty amazing as far as if you want to see Kingdom Come as a live-action show, it's, it is on. It's called Jupiter's Legacy. And even beyond that, if you don't know that, I'd still recommend that as, as a really good comic book uh, television show. But at any rate, it just got me thinking about comic books and Kingdom Come's a big fucking deal, dude. And I might know it a little bit better than you because I'm older than you. But when it came out, it was a comics uh, event. It was, it was right up there with Death of Superman or you know, death of Robin or any of the gimmicky deaths things. This was, this was a big deal, you know, and it, it's aged well actually, but it, it is very bizarre to see a show that is just a carbon copy of that story. Well, uh, dozens, if you have any, uh, comic memories that you would like to share with us, you know how with which to go about it. Uh, in the meantime, Jason, would you like to finish the show off this week by talking about a live action superhero in a certain manner of speaking and <laughs> in other ways certainly not uh there were two documentaries that aired the same week on the same guy and told two very different stories uh let's talk briefly about the ultimate warrior jason about Absolutely. those two documentaries and then also about pro wrestling's uh predilection towards rewriting their history and we're not talking about rewriting history like removing Roddy Piper from WrestleMania six, but for our rewriting history by just retelling or recreating a lie that best benefits your business at that moment. And then just that becomes the new truth moving forward until a more convenient truth replaces it down the road. I definitely think that is something that has happened with the ultimate warrior. Jason, you have seen both documentaries. One was from a and E on that series. We have talked quite a bit about in the past, uh, with a and E doing a series of, of WWE sponsored docs. The other was from dark side of the ring. Um, dark side already had their air date set. And then a and E moved their warrior one up to make sure that theirs aired first, which I think is interesting. So, Jason, let's start with your opinions on those two documentaries, The Ultimate Warrior as a whole, and then we'll we'll go from there. Absolutely. So these documentaries are about the Ultimate Warrior, Jim Helwig, um, very complicated individual, but uh, there's no doubt that he is one of those big wrestling legends that if you're our age, you know exactly who the Ultimate Warrior is. He made quite an impact uh, in wrestling uh, in the late 80s, early 90s. There was no escaping this man. He had, he had really uh, risen to fame and he was pushed to the moon. So yeah, there it's about Jim Helwig. And the interesting part about it is I was looking very forward to, to not only watching it because I thought, what an interesting choice because he's... I, to say, I guess you say complicated because some people as children loved his character, but him as a person, there was many flaws uh, and a lot of political issues that were just, you know, heinous, quite frankly. And he was phobic it, of anything that was not vehemently conservative. I think that's one, that's a simple way of putting it. Yeah, absolutely. It was, it was really, he had a lot of, you know, hateful separatist rhetoric and uh, that he espoused. Uh, after he retired from wrestling and tried to, you know, make that a second uh, career as a kind of a conservative motivational 
speaker or whatever. Anyway, I thought it was a good, I thought it was a great idea for A&E to, to have that as a, one of their lineup because I thought that's an interesting one. Cause there's, it's not like you're going to watch it about, let's say Steve Austin, Roddy Piper, where you show a few flaws, but overall we love this man. That's not the ultimate war. Even fans who love the character don't necessarily love Jim Helwig at all. Yeah. Um, that was an interesting thing too. Is the the first time the WWE ever sponsored a documentary on the Ultimate Warrior? It was the self destruction of the Ultimate Warrior, and it was basically <clears throat> the entire thing was about how he couldn't work, he couldn't talk, and he was a piece of shit. And then after he made nice with the company, they pulled that from store shelves. You can't find it anywhere anymore. Uh, I know I have a copy, Jason. It wouldn't surprise me if you possibly do as well. Got to, got to, got to throw that. I thing do in. not. <laughs> so disappointing. Physical media, Jason. That's why physical media is so important. I, I don't need and, that one. <laughs> and oh, it's it's fascinating for. I've watched it. <laughs> I've watched it many times online. I've watched and, it probably three times. Yeah. And uh, so anyway, that got pulled, and then they put out a, a puff piece documentary about what a wonderful guy he is, and then you know made named an, a, an award after him and the whole thing. So is interesting is you have both of those things kind of colliding with the A&E WWE sponsored one, though they did cover more than I think people thought they were going to going into it uh, versus the dark side of the rings uh, version of things. And for those that haven't seen it, I will say just for quick context, the A&E documentary heavily featured Warrior's second wife that he was you know with at the time he died. Whereas the dark side of the ring featured exclusively Warrior's first wife. If you want to get a very quick microcosm of the different take that these two shows were taking, uh, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And the fact of I watched both and I watched A&E's first and then I watched Vice's Dark Side of the Ring Becoming Warrior uh, one. I could let me just make it very quick. I know we don't have a lot of time here, but the the Vice one. Uh, probably no surprise is better. It's a better documentary. And I don't just mean the way they cover Jim Helwig. Um, it's just better. It's better edited. It's better conceived. There's better guests. There's better interviews and it's not a, a hit piece either. It, it's the, the, the vice, uh, becoming warrior one. Some of the guests that they have on there that they interview, you know, is corny is Jim Cornette. You got uh, Jim Ross, you got Jake Roberts, you have his first wife, you have friends that that knew him during this time. Eric Bischoff is on there. Uh, a lot of people uh, that they've had in previous ones, and they will come out. I mean, Cornette actually says, I did not like this man. I did not like how he treated the business, blah, blah. But having said that, he is very... I guess balanced and even on his, what he says about him. This is not the self-destruction of the ultimate warrior. And honestly, if you had to choose between the two, I would, you should seek out becoming warrior on vice. You can find it on a lot of platforms out there. I watched it on that daily motion, um, site, whatever. Do you think the shorter and, running time hurt it, helped it, or didn't have an effect? Because A and E is two hours, uh, you know, mine, and then with commercials, and then no, this is an hour with commercials. I don't think it had it. I don't think it hurt at all. The thing with A and E is, I have to give that documentary a bit of credit in the fact that it was, it did cover things. I said they are going to stay the fuck away from that shit. They did not. They oversimplified it by using the word complicated many times. Yeah. Um, but but it, they did not shy away. The one thing I got from the A and E documentary. And I know this is sort of beating an almost dead horse, but Vince is a fucking dick. 
Vince is a fucking revisionist dick. Not only are these things that are coming out on A&E every time he's on, or Hogan, or Bubba the Love Sponge, where it's like, it's thick up for bad fucking shit that Vince did time. And there's not, I don't know how to explain it, but even I was never a mark for the Ultimate Warrior, even when he was popular. And I don't like Jim Helwig as a person. Right. Okay. But I can say there were many times in the A&E documentary, I fucking felt sorry for Jim Helwig. I really did because it shows so much behind the scenes of how Vince McMahon treats his employees, even the ones he so-called is close to independent like, contractors, Jason, right. independent and the contractors. Thing is, Jim Helwig, the problems that he had with Jim Helwig, quite frankly, is Jim Helwig standing up for himself. And I'm not making that up, folks. You're talking, this is someone that doesn't even like this dude. But if you really break it down, this whole self-destruction of the ultimate warrior is a man who went, fuck you. Uh, we're not talking about his wrestling acumen. We're not talking about his promo cutting. We're talking about someone that realized his place in the machine and wanted better. That's all it is. And Vince going, no, fuck you, actually. And you're really seeing labor versus management. And I side with fucking labor. So there were many times in the A&E when I'm like, fuck you, Vince. And that's all I can say on that. But as far as knowing Jim Helwig, the person, the man, oh, the Vice episode is way, way better. Because his first wife that was with him during the times of his this meteoric rise in fame and fortune as the ultimate warrior and saw the transformation of him being Jim Helwig into the ultimate warrior into the warrior okay she was there and she this is not a hit piece from her either you can right. tell she's very very broken up and hurt by many of the experiences she had in her marriage with him rightfully so but you could tell i mean i hate to say this but you could tell she there's still a very strong love she has for jim helwig it's very strong and you know she repped him as much as she spoke honesty and she is the star of the piece by far and provided I mean, the letter that Jim Helwig sent Vince McMahon to get Vince to fire him right after his SummerSlam appearance is covered extensively in both documentaries, both of them. And I just think that they're great companion pieces, but if I had to choose one, it'd be the one that actually has nothing to do with WWE. And what's really piss fucking poor is a lot of their so-called interviews for the documentary, the A&E one, are stuff they already had in the can that WWE has had on other DVDs and shit like that that they prepackaged and shoved back into a documentary for A&E. There was... Uh, this stuff the stuff for Vice is all new. There and by the way, quote. Jake Roberts' stuff on, on the Vice episode is, is fantastic. Fantastic, but I've also heard Jake's was also extremely inaccurate as far as, far as some of the timeline of that. He, he, either, you know, he's not known for being the most truthful person to begin with, but then also I think a lot of that <clears> is also just comes down to memory of things 30 years ago that he's getting his timelines uh, like he like he wasn't like he was talking about when he was supposed to have a, a title feud with the warrior like he was he was yeah. going into a feud with the warrior warrior long dropped the belt and there was no belt involved in that nor was no. there supposed to be like stuff like that but, um, but the thing is that i can just say this about it is that this i really have to give a lot of respect to vice because the people in it they're not fans 
of Jim Helwig, but it wasn't a hit piece. It was very fair and balanced, and it was not revisionist history in any fucking way other than, yeah, Jake fucking up like when the Warrior had the belt and shit like that. Well, I'll say this. Jim Cornette had something to say about it, because of course he did, that I thought was was interesting, where he said the, the thing with the A&E doc, he's like, the A&E doc is filled with people that never knew the guy, that mm-hmm. were like nine or ten years old and were big fans of his character, He's like, meanwhile, the dark side of the ring is full of the people that actually knew the prick and couldn't fucking stand him. Like the A&E one doesn't have anyone who worked with him, doesn't have anyone who had to put up with his bullshit outside of obviously Vince. But, you know, he's like, whereas, you know, on the on the vice side of things, it's all people that knew him personally and had some shit to say about it. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing is that. You know, no disrespect to his, the white, you know, his widow. No, no, um, no. But the thing is that she didn't know Jim Helwig during these years when he was the ultimate warrior. So all she can provide is what she's heard secondhand and how he was at the end of his life, which they cover that pretty well also in the Vice episode. But, you know, talking real quick, because I know we got to get off of this, Dave, but um, the revisionist history uh, that you were, you know, talking about really let's just get down to it it's vince mcmahon oh yeah uh, because vince owns goddamn pretty much everything that had happened up until very recently i mean he owns the history of of documented wrestling uh particularly in north america is that he can say whatever he wants he can rewrite how things went i can tell you for a fact that up until this steve austin a&E documentary. I didn't hear anyone talk about Steve Austin the way he should have been talked about for the last 10 fucking years. They didn't. There seemed to be in Titan Towers this idea of we should not give this man too much fucking credit. It was a team effort. We all made Steve Austin. We all made Stone Cold Steve Austin. It was really only until this fucking doc that people are like, no, actually, that's, uh, yeah, Steve Austin had a lot to do with uh, saving our fucking ass. And that hadn't been talked about that way for fucking years because they had revisioned it up. So one of the greatest example of this Vince McMahonian revisionist history bullshit in my opinion, and I guess a lot of people out there is is the um, NWO versus DX influence on wrestling popularity, whatever the fuck you want to call it. I literally had probably a year and a half, two years ago, Omar, uh, the one who's responsible for naming us, you know, America's favorite niche podcast. He texts me and says, I'm watching the network here. Do you remember DX being as popular as the NWO? That was the text. And I just went, and I had to stop what I was doing. I think I was bussing a fucking table on the busiest night of the week. I had to stop. You know me. I'm like, I know exactly what you're fucking saying. I said, it's re-fucking-diculous that you got Triple H, Shawn Michaels, Vince McMahon, and all of them saying, yeah, well, we had, you know, Click North up here, and DX was doing their thing, and... Uh, DX couldn't fucking carry the NWO's jockstrap, okay? The NWO was a cultural phenomenon. That's why you see all these young people today not even know what the fuck they're wearing. They're wearing an NWO t-shirt. It was on a whole different fucking level. It was on We were there. It was on Austin's level. We were all fucking there. We remember exactly how this went. DX was this tiny segment of the show where you're going to see people acting like jackasses. The NWO was like the Nazis had rolled into WCW and were killing people. It was on a whole nother 
fucking level. There oh, is no, no comparison. But, but, but Jason, no, no. It, it, it WrestleMania 21, uh, DX oh, yeah. clearly won the war. DX clearly won the war and, and got that victory back, just like Hogan got his victory back when he defeated the Renegade. It's a bunch of fucking bullshit. Kids, if you're young out there, or three people that are under the age of 40, let me tell you something. Uh, there was a particular time in the late 90s where it came down to just a few fucking people. Austin, The Rock, the NWO, anyone who was involved, and Goldberg. That's what every motherfucker was talking about when they went to school or work the next day. That was it. End of fucking list. DX was not on that list. In 97, you could make a case for Sting. Yeah, maybe. But the thing is that I can tell you for a fact, folks, that that is without, that is like Omar said, it's almost like this highlighter of this is complete revisionist history. This is completely retconned. This DX did not have a goddamn thing to do with changing the fucking industry or setting it on a new course or anything. Well, it's a microcosm on anything. It's a microcosm on how they portray Triple H. His entire career is is revised as far as his actual influence at the time. Compared to the other people around him, he was never at Austin's level. He was never at Rock's level. He was never at Foley's level. He was a great heel. During that period of time, it deserves credit as such. But he was, again, not to keep throwing back to Cornette, but I do think he nailed this, where he was like, he was the guy who worked with the guy who earned the money, or who, who drew the money. To, to me, if if Triple, it's, it's, this is what every other fucking pundit that has ever said anything about Triple H is saying. <clears throat> if Triple H hadn't married into the fucking family, to me... The best Triple H ever would have been, and this is no disrespect to the person I'm getting ready to say, would be Arn Anderson. He would be someone that is a very good promo cutter, very decent hand in the ring, someone that's a good teacher, has good psychology, but Arn Anderson was never Ric Flair. Never. And the thing is, that's where, in my opinion, Triple H would have landed until he was fired by Vince McMahon a couple years after the, the Attitude Era. And, and because he married in and started the political game, both in how, both, both behind the scenes and, you know, with, with the corporate structure, but also, you know, fucking up people's careers on, on the outside there, on the other side of the, uh, the curtain, that's why Triple H is who he is today. Okay. Uh, but no, Triple H, that is, you're right. It's complete revisionist history. And for people out there, like, I'm always amazed because I love Dave Batista. I fucking love Dave Batista. I'm always amazed that I really, truly believe Dave Batista thinks Triple H is like the Michael Jordan of fucking wrestling. And I'm like, Dave, dude, no, no, that's, that couldn't be more it inaccurate is, if you tried. It is true that Batista owes a, a big part of his success to Triple H. I think that's absolutely, fair. And I think that, that colors his, you know, perspective on that. Yeah. But the what are some let's let's to end this show, let's very quickly just run down a list of what some of our favorite revisionist WWE normally. I mean, I'm thinking they'll all going to be WWE, but if another one pops into your head, by all means, um, tropes <clears throat> and bullshit are uh, I'll, I will start, Jason, just off the top yeah. of my head. Ninety three thousand yeah. plus people at WrestleMania three. Let's start with let's start with that. Uh, the fact that Vince was was just offering talent greater opportunities during the death of the territories. Meanwhile, WCW was raiding his talent pool. You know, a decade later, uh, that's one of my that's one of my personal favorites. Um, I mean, the Chris Benoit never existing in in current uh, current lore. Um, 
those are a couple off the top of my head. The the Benoit mm-hmm. thing, I give him a bit of slack on because I do kind of understand that. But at the same time, like, who was in the main event at WrestleMania 20, guys? Like, he was there. You can't really change that. Mm-hmm. Um, what are what are some of yours that, that come to mind? That Owen Hart would have wanted the show to continue. Yes. Yeah. Oh, it was for Owen. It was out of respect for Owen. Yeah, fuck mm-hmm. you. That that over the edge should have continued, both for the wrestlers, spectators, and the company. That that's what he would have wanted. By by far, that's the one that I'm like, fuck you, dude. Fuck you. And then honestly, if you're looking at the stuff that isn't, you know, about people dying and just disrespecting them and keep on going, um, it would the two big, biggest ones are the the overestimation and the historical value of DX. That's one. And number two, that Steve Austin didn't honestly single handedly stomp a mud hole in that company's ass and pull them up and by their throat and say, look at all this fucking T-shirts, merchandise and me getting on mainstream TV. And oh, look at me. I'm the new Hulk Hogan and them never giving him that credit after he left the fucking company. Okay. So, uh, dozens, if uh, you have any other revisionist takes that you would like to throw our way, that you would like to hear us comment on, Jason, where could they, where could they possibly have us, where could, they, where could they tell us these things? I really don't know. No, actually, I do know. It's that fucking email address again. It is askdaveandjason at excite.com because, well, God damn it, line is fucking abhorred. And a uh, final note, congratulations to Cody on his new puppy. Uh, any final thoughts, Jason? No, that's it, guys. Thank you very much for listening. Contact us with anything you might want to hear about or us talk about. We love hearing from you, and uh, we can't wait to talk to you again next week. And on that note, I am Dave Beaudry. And I am still your Jason Bailey. And we are one day closer to dead, but that day is not and will not be today. At least I hope not. So until next week. Dave.